This is Making It Up, a weekly culture news podcast focused on analyzing and debating whatever comes up of interest in creative culture. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Can. The format of this podcast is like catch up at the start, followed by two main items of news, one chosen by Eugene and one chosen by myself. We pick our topics from the Macon Briefing, which is an email we send out twice a week filled with current news, interesting links, and more. On Making It Up, we talk through the things we're most interested in and try to come to some sort of conclusion on the state of culture, media, tech, food, whatever it may be in our modern times. Also, if you like this podcast, the best thing you can do for it is share your favorite episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. Good morning, Sharice. How's it going? Good afternoon. Afternoon on your end. Yes. I'm recording this from the comfort of my bed. Which is nice. Is it? Mm, I mean, it's it's 4 p.m. right now. I probably shouldn't be in bed right now, but... Is it going to make you more lethargic? No, I don't think so. You say that, Oh, but... you know what my new favorite snack is? This is totally unrelated. Well, kind of unrelated. Your new favorite... You okay, of... you were just in Japan. Is it Japanese? No, it's not. Is it Chinese? No, it's not. Okay, tell me. It's probably the most westernized thing possible. Beef jerky. Have you... No, have you ever had powdered peanut butter? Ew, no. Oh my gosh. So the powdered part is just the form it comes in, but you add water to it. And basically the outcome is essentially the same output as like regular peanut butter. But the way they produce it and they manufacture it is they remove some of the oil or actually a lot of oil. So why is this your new favorite snack? It's just so convenient. It's like... I knew it. I knew whatever you were going to say would have nothing in relation to taste. Tastes good too. I'm not convinced. Anyways, before this, I had I had 48 grams of powdered peanut butter. So does it give you energy? I mean, it's just like peanut butter minus all the oil. How has your week been? Actually, two different things happened to me that are related to today's topic. But I'm going to hold off on mentioning that. Instead, mentioned last weekend, I got to hang out with the Guidries, Gavin and Liz oh, Guidry yeah. from Atlanta. Yeah. So you and I know Gavin well and familiarly. He is a good longtime friend of Alex Mayland back from mm. their wish days in Atlanta. And he's just always kept in touch with Alex. And then as a result, kind of wound up in our wider friend circle, I guess. Yeah. But also the type of people they are, they're creative and friendly and they just like to meet lots of creative types and they're just really great people. They love to travel. It was nice to just be in, even though I'm not a local, it was nice to be in London with them and kind of get it from their perspective a little bit as well and talk about their impressions of the city. And Gavin listens to this podcast and he had a question for us. Why is Thoughtiana by Blueface so popular? I was wondering if this question was just going to go like totally over your head. Have you heard of the song Thoughtiana? Can you hear me uh, typing into my keyboard right now? Yeah. No, I have no idea. Okay, so. Were you familiar with the song? Yes, I was already familiar with this song. I don't particularly. Who's it by? Blueface. It's like his first big single. This could be a one-hit wonder kind of situation. Adiana, my blue face. All right. It's not a particularly good song musically, in my opinion. But Gavin had that question, thought we should discuss it. I knew I'd have to do all the heavy lifting here. 
But his uh. main answer, he gave us an answer as well. He thinks it has entirely to do with the song title. He thinks- Ariana. Yeah. He thinks it has nothing to do with like the actual music or lyrics of the song, but that Thotiana is a great word and great to say. And it's funny. Hmm. Which I thought I'm kind was of watching it. I'm half watching in the background. It's true because sometimes if it's, I think I actually agree with that because it's a play on obviously thoughts. It actually personifies it, right? Yeah. Because a thought is generally like a, uh, an individual, but now Thotiana kind of further humanizes it. Yeah. Yeah. So I probably need to watch this I have and to come spell back this to you. With- for anyone who doesn't know this, it's T H O T I A N A. And Tatiana, and it's interesting to me because I think it has something to do just with the way words sound and what makes words fun for us. Because yeah. I know this is like a dumb explanation, but Tatiana is just like fun to say as a word. Yeah. And then that in combination with thought becomes. Well, the thing is, we've also entered this phase where people like to humanize stereotypes, right? Like Becky. That's true. Right? That's true. That That's another thing too that makes it maybe relevant for this moment in time. Yeah, that's a good point. And the other thing I was going to say is the song's popularity, again, not having to do with the music, got a lot of press because people were dissing the rapper. And so it's kind of Mm. that weird effect of when something is talked about so much negatively, it becomes known about, and then it can do that like flip around where enough people know about it that it becomes popular. Yeah. I mean, there's a there's a YG appearance on this too. Oh yeah. There's a bit of a cosine. So those yeah. are the three things I'd say. Thank you, Gavin. Bringing yeah. in the- Did we have any other questions to yeah, answer? Yeah. We have another question via Insta. Let me pull it up. So we also have a question from Instagram from at X-I-N-Z-H-E-T, Shinjet. This person asks- where do we draw the line between inspiration and plagiarism? And interestingly, this I think is related to a Twitter exchange I had between a person on the Macon account who had read Modern Creator's Paradigm, which we published two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And this person expressed that they liked the piece, everything, except their only issue was with when we talked about plagiarism. I think it's an interesting one because... In, in many ways, it's hard for you to break it down into something that's objective and can be measured, right? Like when you have an idea, you can't really be like, hey, this is 54% similar to this idea. That's true. I think it's always up for interpretation. The easiest way, I think people often utilize that that argument, oh, it's a, it's a plagiarized piece is the visuals of it, right? Yeah. Because that's the part that is less up for debate. Because once you enter this conceptual realm, it's hard for you to be like, well, you know what? He plagiarized the idea. But often the idea and its execution is what is the topic at hand. Yeah. So like, for example, if I want to do, I'm making this up. I, I create a piece of work and it's inspired by uh, the similarities in dress amongst people in fashion, right? Now- there's different ways for you to output that, but conceptually you and I could both assume that inspiration and create something. So let's say, but then let's say the output is, oh, we line up 
a hundred models in a 10 by 10 grid and they're all wearing the same thing or your people are wearing a blue jumpsuit and my people are wearing a white jumpsuit. Like, I think you could argue that that's probably in some ways going to be a rip of someone else. But conceptually, it's the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. What if, but what if I took that and I was like, and I laid everyone um, across and basically had a pile of people that were, that were piled up or something. I don't know, I'm making this up as I go along, but I think that once you remove the actual executional element of it, then it becomes harder for people to make that assessment. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So to go back to the conversation I had with this person on Twitter, at Charles Jr. wrote, truly love this article. My only issue was around the part about plagiarism. I don't believe that's a real thing, simply a social construct. Everything we do is learned in some way, which means we copied or stole since the beginning of time. And I responded and I said, we could have been more specific because you're right. A lot of movements or trends are learned through copying or developed through copying. Kind of a lot of mm-hmm. people revolving around the same theme, like you're saying. You know, that 100-person grid, maybe it says something about synchronicity or, you know, homogenous thought. And obviously, a lot of people can do something around that idea. It's in the execution that it looks like plagiarism. And so I wound up giving him specific examples of something that's plagiarism, such as Zara, Mm -hmm. where you're taking work that is clearly traceable to a specific individual and you're not crediting them and you're using it for commercial benefit. Another good example Mm -hmm. of something that I would call plagiarism and not inspiration is that news item about the French gallery that was in Paris, Gallery Secura, canceled an exhibition by artist Guillaume Verda because a lot of people said his work copies Jean-Michel Basquiat. Part of their issue is like, it just looked like you're saying aesthetically so much like it and they never referenced that. And so it was just not. I mean, I think there's room for things to exist in the world that have a very clear path towards something that's familiar, right? But I think if it's too obvious, then it doesn't really spark that level of interest and that level of respect. Yeah, yeah. And I think I also- I think that's what it comes down to. You can do iterative work. And I actually do, I especially encourage younger artists and designers to copy work to learn something. But that's not work that I think should be used for commercial purposes. It's work that you can use on your own to learn how someone does something. Does that make sense? Like, if you see a video you really like, I would encourage, like, go out and try to recreate that video. Because in trying to do that, you will learn so much. But it's not because you want the end product to look the same. It's because you want to just find out how it's done. Like, obviously, people like Cause have had a very sort of iterative approach to their artwork. Yeah. Where do they stand within it? Because would they have been as popular if they didn't take a recognizable piece of pop culture, like Mickey Mouse, like The Simpsons? I am somewhat critical of Ka's work, parts of it. I think it is interesting to do the Snoopy doll with Uniqlo and do the Ka's Snoopy doll. But I think it's interesting because it says something about our obsession with material items and nostalgia. I don't know exactly if that's his plan if that's why he does that. But if there is something it says, I think it says that. 
I also actually I think mean, of Arsham's work because he also references a lot of known popular culture entities, but he's like way a more, Spalding basketball. Exactly. Like example. a Spalding yeah. basketball, like a Lakers jacket, like also Mickey Mouse wrapped in cloth in a sculpture. But I think he's been really articulate about why to why he uses those pop culture items. Why does he want to be using things that are referential and in our collective consciousness? I don't get that as much from Cause. The work that of his I like more, that I personally am more attracted to, is that work that is not referential to things in culture and are more original in terms of aesthetic. And I think his large-scale installation pieces are successful in that way. I mean, the thing is, is that this, this is a book I haven't referenced in a while, but remember a few months ago, I was really big on that book, Hitmakers, right? Mm-hmm. And what they talk about is that for something to be popular, it has to be sufficiently familiar but the gap has to be large enough that, oh, this is something new. So when you take something like The Simpsons, but you reimagine it sufficiently where it's still recognizable, that's where you're winning. You're right. So it's even, even the Tatiana thing is exactly like that. Yeah. Because the word thought is not something that's just entered the sort of popular culture lexicon as of yesterday. It's been in around for a few years, right? You're right. So I think that that's kind of how you look at it. The author behind that book actually breaks it down into acronym of the four things that are required to make something suitable to be a hit. Did you pull it up? Yeah. Did you yeah, find it? I got it. I found it. So the author of Hitmakers is Derek Thompson. And actually the principle you're referring to, according to this article, doesn't come originally from Thompson. It comes from a man named Raymond Louie, mm-hmm. who came up with this guiding philosophy across all his work called MAYA, M-A-Y-A, which is an acronym for Most Advanced Yet Acceptable. The author of this article that I happen to be looking at says, quote, basically it means that there's a bullseye somewhere between familiarity and futuristic where comfort and surprise come together to create something that's undeniably interesting for people. It's a pretty good quote from this blog, Bates Marin, which I've never been on before. I think you're right. I think Cause is really successful <laughs> in that regard. And I'm sure that those Sesame Street, Snoopy Simpsons collabs let him do so many other things. Yep. Should we move on? Yeah, that's it for me. Yeah, maybe we can talk about some of the stories we posted this past week. Of course. So one thing we did was uh, Sights and Sounds called Cosmologica with Dan Hendrickson. This was very interesting because Dan actually just approached me out of the blue. He emailed Macon and I started looking at his work. And I'm like, this is really interesting because it actually is in many ways on the surface, very easy to understand because it's inspired by space, right? Yeah. Like that's a tangible element. But when you start looking further into it, it's like, oh, well, he's done it in a special method in terms of printing it. And also naturally the, the photos themselves aren't actually taken in, in space. space, they're more conceptual. I think it's And they're taken of things that are done here on Earth. So I thought that was really cool. And But it's with always that research sort of an, element of thinking this is what something would look like in space. And then on top of that, it's always kind of nice when someone is just given a brief on how to record on their own and they actually do a really good job with it. It's a small thing, but so satisfying. So, I mean, it's not that easy. No, yeah, definitely. I, I've actually wound up being a person who is somewhat known in my cohort as having some idea 
about sound and podcasting. And so many people ask me the same single question, which is how do you record a podcast conversation over Skype, over video call? Mm -hmm. So now I've written a checklist. Yeah, like a few months ago when I was interviewing Jeff Staple for our Unexpected Connections thing, he was just curious how we did it. Because obviously for the business of Hype, the the podcast he does with Hype, he is in some ways relegated to just people that are only in in studio. Yeah. Yeah, in New York. But... I mean, you just have to... It's very limiting. It can be limiting. I mean, you want to, you, you kind of have to have someone that's willing to do a little bit of legwork. But I think there's different ways of solving it. Like we've done it a multitude of ways to get good quality audio remotely. Yeah. Like some people, if you're on the higher end of the budgets, you can just have them go to a recording studio. This is true. And, and a sound tech will do it for you. Anyway, the other thing we published is Remembering Triple X, Hong Kong's underground mecca. And this is from a conversation I and Elphick had with Cassidy Enso and James Acey, the founders of Triple X, shortly after Triple X wound up having to close its doors. And looking back at it now is particularly interesting because we had the conversation well 10 months ago because it's... Still relevant, Triple X has not come back around into existence. And the situation has not really changed in Hong Kong regarding music venues. Sorry, I should give a little bit of an explanation. Triple X, easiest way to say it, was a club on the Kowloon side of Hong Kong. But it was also a place that really encouraged and nurtured underground culture and music and local talent. And they wound up having to close, simplifying the whole thing, wound up having to close due to money issues, due to sustainability issues. And yeah, I guess we had a bit of a postmortem conversation together. Yeah. It's interesting because those are kind of moments where you can archive and record a moment in time. You know, like maybe, maybe the relevance of, of this conversation won't really emerge. Maybe in 10 years, you'll look back and like, man, it's crazy that this, this is what happened or this is what it was like. I think so. I think it will be interesting as Hong Kong evolves and you look back and you say, oh, this was, you're able to see more clearly. This happened at this moment in time because then XYZ happened afterwards. So the subject is Goldman Sachs tells its bankers to loosen their neckties. And this was a piece of news that actually made its waves on quite a few places. I mean, I'm pulling this from the New York Times. And essentially, Goldman Sachs, which is a bank, told its bankers that they can start dressing more casually. The relaxed dress code is a desire to cater to younger employees, but also it's a hope to be more relevant towards some of their clients in Silicon Valley, which already have a more relaxed, casual dress code. One of their competitors, J.P. Morgan Chase, made a similar move three years earlier to make things less formal and more casual. Like Everything I've laid out is essentially the, the foundation of the article. There's not really all that much else. Wait, I think what element. you have not mentioned in this article is an amazing pun that the author slipped in. Where was it? Towards the end, he says, he writes, Denim remains a relative rarity among bankers based beyond the West Coast, perhaps for fear of being seen by their bosses as slacking off. 
You think slacking off is a a hundred percent? It's a pun, definitely a pun. I almost messaged you I last saw night like, when I read this. I was like, "This is reason enough." Ah, uh, yes, that's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Anyway, sorry, keep going. Yeah, that's the that's the crux of it. You're clearly sharper on the literary side than I am, or maybe I, I just skim. I don't but, know. This is the first time I've seen a pun like that in the New York Times. So, so it's it's interesting because I think that actually, in actuality, the Silicon Valley like tech crowd has, in some ways, evolved in terms of their fashion sense. Like, well, maybe this is just confirmation bias, but I don't know if you saw this this tweet that went viral like a, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, that involved Twitter's Jack Dorsey, and people were like kind of comparing him to being like a sense shopper. Like essence. Yeah, it's really cringe. Yeah. This photo. It's. Is it though? Is it not? I mean, it looks kind of funny, but it, anyways, he. I think it doesn't. Jack help. Dorsey. Well, okay, no. On the surface, aesthetically, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with this. It's not like I'm making fun of his fit. I think it's just funny when you know who Jack Dorsey is and have some sense of who he has been over the years as yeah. this Twitter guy. And also the fact that he's holding the hand of a person who also looks like she could be a sense model. So it's not just yeah. the outfit. He's got this whole lifestyle thing going on. To contextualize this, Jack Dorsey is wearing a sleeveless shirt uh, and a pair of drop crotch shorts and some leather sandals. And he just like very Rick Owens-esque, super drapey. Extremely. Um, but, but the thing is, is that the reason why... There's, there's several reasons why I found this interesting. First and foremost, I think that a lot of the popularity around fashion and street culture today is influenced by the reseller side of it. Yeah. And the fact that it's so easy to, to draw comparisons from a business side, oh, like this industry is now worth this much and whatnot. Um, on top of that, I think I, I would like to to speculate that there's some sort of connection between the popularity of streetwear slash sneakers and the injection of tech money. Mm-hmm. So tech came in, basically had way more disposable income than the kids and just people that generally were in and around street culture heavily increased the prices to a point where obviously now things like GOAT, StockX, et cetera, they're all very successful because of that. Do you right? think they, that they, they could money. have done the same thing for suits? And the equivalent of suits, formal wear, if tech had decided um, to channel their money into that instead, they probably could. On that same note, you have less of a branding element around suits. There's only a certain number of people and/or styles that you can quickly identify. Oh, that's a suit from that brand. Like a Tom Brown suit is like very discernible, but I don't think everything else is. It's just like because a, a suits. Wearing a suit and making it look good is probably less about the brand and more about the fit. Yeah. I'd say and the tailoring. So I was thinking about if I had the statistical abilities to do a study, I'd be curious on seeing the average resale value of a sneaker over the course of the last 10 years and then potentially tracking that back to some sort of metric that ties into the popularity introduced by people in tech. Mm. I don't know what that second parameter would be, but you know, like 
uh, it'd be interesting because how do you? Yeah, I mean, amount of VC money that went into sneakers, streetwear, anything adjacent to that. Assuming that VC money is in some ways correlational to interest. I think it's a start. It's at least a clear metric that you could chart over time. Yeah. Or if you could do it based more on region and locale, like Yeezy, San Francisco. Huh. And do like a Google search around that and seeing the popularity. Um, but anyways, what I'm trying to get at is I'm, I'm very interested to see if like, you know, if it becomes more mainstream in the sense that bankers can start wearing whatever, what does that mean? And what's the ripple effect yeah, of- that's what I was interested in. Casual fashion. This quote's going to stick with me for a long time. And I was just having a conversation with Jason Maiden. I'm sure I've referenced this before, but he basically said that like, you know, tech got really excited and interested about sneakers once they realized that it was such an important part of uh, the lifestyle of millennials. Yeah. Right? And yeah, if it never... this before. Yeah. So I think that that's an interesting sort of insight into it. But another... Another part of this that I was thinking about was the power of a suit and what it means going forward. Yeah, if, let's talk about that. Yeah. So I, I came across this article uh, that talked about a brief history of the power suit. And it had some interesting quotes. Uh, this is more to set things up. Yep, go for it. The quote suggests, the end of the 19th century vigorously expelled the private self from the workplace public presentation become decidedly conformist. A man in long trousers and a top hat was intentionally declaring that industry had slain his libido and or bought all of its future rights. The look was intended to suggest restraint, mastery over all temporal urges, goal-orientedness, punctuality, and accuracy. Following that up, with industrialization came migration into major cities. Workers seeking their fortunes had opportunities for reinvention. Status-seeking meant wearing the properly coated garments. Rationalism replaced feudal loyalty and brought with it a need to split the self into at least two distinct parts, a performative social workplace persona and a personal self that needed vigorous and constant repression. The necktie is symbolic of this emotional self-control, the strangling of feelings in order to belong to a professional social order of other goal-orientated bourgeois men who distrust their true selves enough to smother them. Yeah, I think... This all makes a lot of sense if you look at the history of fashion. And it makes a lot of sense as a kind of work uniform. Policemen, mm -hmm. construction workers, firemen, arguably their uniforms are more functional. It's directly related to the utilitarian nature of their jobs. As mm -hmm. in a, a fireman's garment literally protects them from fire. So it's harder to say that about a suit. Like how is the suit made that fits a banker's actual job. But it does in a way, just not clearly black and white functional. It's more to do mm -hmm. about presentation and coding and what we interpret a suit to mean. Yeah. And we generally seem to trust people that wear a suit. Yes. Right? I think general. that's the, the belief. But if suddenly that trust is changing, and let's say the only people that wear a suit are people that are like salespeople. Like, what does that mean going forward, right? So it changes the meaning and purpose behind a suit. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, what's interesting to me about this article is that 
the Goldman memo about this, there's a quote, we want all of our clients to feel comfortable with and confident in our team. So please dress in a manner that is consistent with your client's expectations. Essentially what Goldman is saying as an institution is think about how what you're dressing affects your relationship with your clients. If you have tech mm-hmm. clients that like to wear jeans and all birds, maybe you wear jeans and all birds. But I question this strategy because I don't think that what you're looking for in a banker is for them to look and think like you. You want them to look and think like a banker. That's actually a valid point. So you don't think there's value in putting your client at ease and someone who's approachable and relatable. Because arguably, if you remove the suit from the equation, there's actually more opportunity for relation mm-hmm. and comfort. So like if, making this up, I'm wearing a pair of Nikes, you're wearing a pair of Nikes, and they just released in the last four weeks, and we both like sneakers, that has immediately created a new layer of of socialization in a way. Well, I think you know I mean? this goes into the nature of banking that we think about and the kind of banking that goes on between high-level tech VC people and bankers. Because maybe you're right in that situation. If the team from Goldman is sort of competing with other bank teams for a better relationship with Facebook, then it does make more sense to seem relational Mm -hmm. and chummy and like someone you can have drinks with. But my personal exposure to banking is I need you to take care of my money and I would just like you to look like you can do that. Yeah. I have one more thing I wanted to add, and it actually is already part of the discussion around the more casual nature of fashion and banking, and that's the vest. So if you're unfamiliar, there's a lot of talk. Yeah, there's a lot of talk around this often Patagonia branded vest that people wear that's like gray. And there's actually an Instagram account called Midtown Uniform that just focuses on finance people who all look relatively similar. And the Midtown uniform is usually a pair of light-colored slacks and a gray Patagonia vest. I mean, there's other variations, but that's generally what it is. And there's an article in Esquire, and this quote says, what struck me as most fascinating about the advent of the Midtown uniform was not just its ubiquity, but its near-universal appeal to a professional class known for two traits, hyper-masculinity and piles of disposable income. The first dismisses fashion trends as unmanly, The second allows access to all manner of sartorial offerings. And yet my friend Alex estimates that roughly 80% of his male colleagues wear this relatively simple and economical ensemble. I think that's so interesting. So here you have like already something that actually is relatively sacred. Like Patagonia as a brand is pretty sacred because of its environmental positioning, right? I think that's part of it. You think that's why bankers wear Patagonia? I don't think that's the only reason why bankers wear Patagonia. I think trying to communicate this wokeness is part of it. <laughs> fair, fair. Yeah, so I think that's really interesting. And I'm I'm curious, maybe this is just happening in a microcosm that is the, the bi-coastal cities of, you know, San Fran and New York. But it's maybe something it that we globally that recognize. Correct. Even yeah. if the number of people doing it is small. It has seeped into such popular consciousness that if you were to we're wear slacks Kong. and a Patagonia vest, we would all immediately have some thoughts on that. Do you think that Patagonia's efforts to to rebuild the environment and or support their environment 
trumps the branding associated with a Patagonia vest. Meaning if you had to buy a vest, would you be detracted from, well, I mean, maybe you don't fall into that demographic, but like, would it detract from you potentially buying Patagonia? It definitely would keep me from buying a gray Patagonia vest, but I do own Patagonia items and it hasn't affected my relationship to those items. Well, I I think that Patagonia probably is more well-suited to not be overrun because it has a strong philosophical mission. But I'm just curious what happens if there's other brands out there that don't really stand for as much, right? And they're not the reason keeping people in love with the brand. So this is kind of where I was going. I was like, I've always said that brands themselves live and die not by product itself, but by association and tribalism. So it's Mm -hmm. like certain things are just potentially going to lose relevance with certain people because of who starts consuming that product at scale. That is really interesting because now we might suddenly have this influx of bankers who, like your quote said, have a lot of disposable income going for brands and making sartorial choices that could then widely affect the rest of us. Anyways, that's all I have from my end. I think it's more like, let's talk about this now and it's kind of like a a fence post and maybe there's an opportunity to Maybe there's an opportunity to return to this um, during some other point in time and just see what the actual outcome is. The only thing I have to add is that we didn't talk about suits very much as a fashion construction and something suits are naturally because of the way it is, is it requires a high level of quality and attention to detail. It's a compli- It's meant to be a complicated garment to make. Mm-hmm. And I think there is value in that the way, you know, couture has value for the, those same things. And I would, I don't know if this wave, this trend necessarily affects that, but I am still kind of attached to this idea of like complicated construction in garments as a kind of art form. So hopefully but that would still continue in a different realm. But isn't footwear itself complicated as well? I don't think or is so. It just Not different. in the same way. Got it. Well, I actually, my last point is that in an industry that has already focused so much on signaling, the introduction of more casual wear means it's another opportunity to one-up each other. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I think that if you look at watches, which has traditionally been a big part of the banking world, it's like, well, now watches and sneakers are yeah. a potential battleground. So that's that. That's directly what I anticipate may happen with this sort of movement mm-hmm. and what it means towards um, the acquisition of hard-to-get sneakers and the pricing associated with it. subject today is an argument to not veganize design. And it's based around an article published in Design, written by Sebastian Cox, a designer, 
But before I can get into his argument, I actually have to do a quick outline of the argument he is opposing. Erez Nevi Pana, another designer, uh, published an article on design earlier in February about how the approach to design needs to be changed to not be human-centric. And his argument is that animals and the planet and everything should be placed equally with humans. So we are not better or more central to things. We're just equivalent. And so what does that look like? How do we move forwards? If we believe in that argument, he says veganism is the solution, that his own personal veganism has led to a better diet, body closet, waste, materials, interaction with products, balance. And he wants to apply that to his profession and his occupation. So he says, vegan design is a way to reconstitute our self-centered culture and to consider everything holistically and to use vegan alternatives. So also to give a little bit of background, this is something I knew, I don't know if other people know, is that animal products are actually in a lot of our objects that we use. It's not just things that we eat, it's not just edible things, but parts of animals are in glue and tape and soap and all of these products that we maybe don't think about or know that. So Pana says we need to move away from that. We need to move to something else and to just apply this vegan concept to everything we do. So Sebastian Cox, he actually starts from the same place. So both of these designers, they start from the same place saying that the world is in trouble loads of issues, we must come up with a sustainable, biodiverse future. How do we do that? Okay. So I think that's interesting that they both recognize the same problem, but have different propositions for how to tackle it. So Cox says, the vegan ideology is too simplistic. It's trying to apply this one thing, make everything vegan, don't involve animals, to all things that we do without considering everything on a more intricate scale, that maybe that one ideology doesn't fit everything. He suggests, you know, design needs to consider better how we raise materials, grow them, and all of our resources, not just our use of animals. We should be reconsidering plants and minerals and everything that makes up nature and ecology because that's how nature works. So one quote from his argument, he says, the principles of restoring ecological functions often referred to as rewilding seem to be a good way to tackle this in any landscape. For example, rather than saving an endangered bird with a captive breeding program, it is often better to restore the evolved food chain of that bird by stimulating biodiversity. At this point, I'm gonna say, the reason I was able to understand these two articles is because I had a Friday seminar on a very similar subject. So thankfully, my program like supported me being able to articulate this. And we were talking about this same idea of how do we consider items in relation to us as humans? Historically, humans have always been the most important thing. Everything we do revolves around how we as humans perceive it. But what if we don't take that as the assumption? How do we move on and think instead of us being center, instead of our perception of things being most important, what does the world look like in that reframing of things? I don't really have a solution. I'm just saying that the, this is what we discussed at length and uh, different people's philosophies. 
I, but I, I think that everything you've mentioned, actually, there are examples of cultures that don't feel as though they are the center of everything. But they're just not the dominant ones. Like I think Japanese culture, I think Native American, I think a lot of indigenous cultures actually embrace this. Yeah, I think you're right. So to that point, I, th- I really believe that there has to be this massive shift in the way we perceive things. Not only if we want to continue existing, but also to have a fighting chance at, how do I put this? It's like, I think it's not even a matter of changing our perception to have a fighting chance, but it's, it's the very first step of recognizing that whatever's working now won't see us through for the next however long. I mean, I just assumed that we were all on board with that premise. But yes, that is the beginning. The beginning is all reaching the same starting point that, that we need to reevaluate. And Cox and Pana are at that point. They just have different ideas of how to move forwards, which I think are not necessarily incompatible. I think to some degree you could do both. Hmm. So, I, I want to say, though, about the thing um, that what, you said what, about uh, cultures and indigenous people. Yeah. I don't think the goal is to romanticize that. And I think that that is a danger, is to look at the way people used to do things or certain small cultures do things and say, oh, we should just emulate that. I think what is more interesting is how do we move forward in a modern society and continue to produce or innovate in technologically advanced ways but in ways that are more material conscious, more careful of what we're doing in the world and how we affect everything around us. It seems as though the challenges that we have before us are never mind never mind the impact of big companies, but on a consumer level, it does seem as though the, the ability to change and make things better is a little bit easier. Or would you disagree? So what I mean by that is like our ability to change our diets, our ability to buy less clothing, to buy better choices when it comes to products. These are immediate things we can do tomorrow and they don't need someone else's yeah. okay. Yeah, I agree. But obviously at mass, it's a lot more challenging because I think that it... Hmm. At a well, consumer level, those choices are that you mentioned, diet, consumption of objects are things that we could change today. And I think that those have impact and we have talked about the impact of that. But the thing that the individual consumer doesn't have the power to do is to change the mass production of the items we are in relation to. Or our, mm-hmm. as in we have change in a way as a spec, as part of a larger population, but we don't make our own computers and lamps and all of our things. How do we push the people who make those things, design and produce them to reconsider the way they're made? Yeah, another, I think relevant to this, I'm going to read another quote. A truly sustainable material culture is only possible with materials that can be extracted from and returned to the earth. We should be studying the use of materials in our past, like pan chalk flooring, a medieval concrete made from crushed chalk and milk whey, or lime plaster, which is held together with dung, ox hair, and straw, superior to cement plaster in its flexibility. We should be reviving and refining these kinds of materials. I'm not sure I totally buy that particular example, but what I do think is relevant about this to the individual person who might not be a designer or a manufacturer is to think about 
is to be more conscious of how things are made. Like for example, have you ever heard that thought experiment, what animals could you eat if you had to kill everything yourself? No, I haven't. So the question is, you're only allowed to eat the meat that you think you would be comfortable killing. So what does that leave you with? Like, would you kill a cow, like with your own hands? I think so because it would produce the most yield, right? I mean, mean, this is up to you. It's a personal answer. I actually just wind up, no, I wind up with chicken. That's it. But then I guess, yeah, it, thinking about it, that's an interesting question because no one says you need to kill a whole cow, but by virtue of doing it, you, you can pretty much take care of all your needs. But then also if you only had chickens, then it would reduce how much chicken you would eat, period. Yeah. Mm, that's a difficult one. I mean, well, there's I, I a lot of I think it's really variables. interesting. I'm not saying that we. this is how we decide to live our lives from here on out, but I think it's interesting to think about. And I think that that kind of thinking should be applied to everything we interact with, if possible. Mm-hmm. My question to you is, if we do as a culture and society actually change and reduce our consumption, what are the most definitive metrics that represent this? Waste. Or how much shit we're throwing out, basically. How much goes into landfills. Mm. That's, a, that's a good one. Or no, Well, now that landfills are kind of moving, maybe it's how much waste is processed because cities now process waste in more ways than just through landfills. But it would be like tonnage, right? Mm. Or whatever they use. Yeah. Maybe more than tons. Like an yeah, actual sure. weight of the waste that we are producing. And yeah. I think that was the clearest way to see consumption going down. Do you think the quantity of... I would, If I was to add to that, I think the quantity of clothing sold, like the actual quantity, not the dollar amount, because mm. things could potentially get more yeah. expensive. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's looking at weight of things, like you're saying. The amount of, of meat consumed. As much as we're talking about all this right now, it's like... If, if there's no thing to define what success looks like, it's hard for people to kind of wrap their head around it. So I'm like, yeah. by virtue of you signaling, hey, maybe it's the amount of trash we throw out. Maybe you start looking, like you don't have a scale next to the next to your garbage can, but you're also conscious. But maybe we should. Like, maybe that's a way of looking at it. Yeah. It's, why not? Right? Like so many things in as, okay, this is like one really tiny way forward. But so many things in our houses are already smart. Why can't the garbage can also be smart? It could be a weight. It could literally be a scale that would then tell me how much weight of trash I threw out every week. Yeah. That's That's actually pretty smart. That's one way. I think that's pretty good, actually. At its essence, this argument that Cox is making is saying that one theory will not apply widely across everything. And he's not saying veganism is bad. He's just saying, you can't say, I'm going to apply veganism to everything and that's going to fix things, which I agree with, is that the ecology of things is so complicated to imagine I could have one personal belief that will then make everything better is flawed. 
not not to say that you shouldn't have personal beliefs. Like if you want to be vegan, mm. you should be vegan. But this pushing of a singular solution based around that is not good enough. That's it. That's my summary. The the fact that some of these changes are so massive, and I say massive because even though like cutting meat out or eating less meat, buying less clothes, they're not difficult. I still think on a large scale to be effective, it's pretty massive. Mm-hmm. So there has to be an ongoing conversation to warm people up to it and to understand it yeah. before you can actually expect people to turn the corner. Yeah, so that is a I, pro I in veganism's corner. Yeah, like I don't think that us talking about this is necessarily going to change someone's mind so much as like, it'll probably push them to research it more. Yeah. And maybe they'll still think about it, but then maybe through consistent messaging, which is basically advertising in a way, they'll arrive at a point where, oh, you know what? Actually, I'm ready to make the move. I understand the inconvenience, convenience of it. I understand how I can maintain my health, um, might be cheaper, et cetera. Only then will you actually have people start turning over. Yeah, yeah. And it's sometimes discouraging because it's thinking about this conversation that we're having, this conversation alone is insufficient to change even one person's mind. Well, they maybe would have it's to not, like we're one touch point uh, is what I'm saying. Like maybe they need 10 touch points that say the same thing and then that makes a change in their life. Yeah, but then again, we are hopefully a step towards it. Yeah, I mean we are, but we're one of many. Tell you what, let's let's leave it at that. What I'm what I am thinking is what we discussed earlier, the whole Maya thing. Yeah. That we talked about. How would it's more like let's find a way to apply that yeah. towards reduced consumption, all that other stuff. And I think there you go. Yeah. You're definitely right. I think that's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us individually at Charisse at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. But the quickest and easiest way is to DM the at Macon Instagram account, M-A-E-K-A-N. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Charisse. And this is Making It Up.